The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, how do drugs influence stool testing? Probably one of our most asked questions in medical affairs. And on The Lab Report, we're all about answers. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Seems like somebody rescued the plant. Thankfully, the CEO liberated it from this podcast room. And that's what you want, you know, solving problems that's left right. and right. <laughs> Liberation. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How goes it? It goes well. How about you? It goes fantastic, which means it goes better. Fantastic is better than well. <laughs> Beat you today. How you feel? Sad. Yeah. You know how competitive I get. Any well, this is a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. And welcome to the show. If you're brand new, Hi. if you're returning, thanks for coming Hello. back. And hopefully you'll go to iTunes or Spotify, maybe join the Genova Lab Report family and subscribe to the show, rate, review, leave us some stars and stuff. If you have additional feedback, you can send that feedback to podcast.gdx.net. I have a question. We had this full moon this week. Mm-hmm. And it's the... It was a lunar eclipse. Flower, flower moon, blood, super moon. Pink, so, something. Like, yeah. When did we start naming every single know. full moon? And like, this seems like it's gotten a little excessive, don't you think? Yeah, and this like, one has several names, which is even more It's confusing. too much. Right. It, it's just a full moon, Just guys. the moon. Like, Look at the moon. Sure, if you want to throw in a super moon every once it. in a while. Yep. But, like, when we're talking about, like, wild wolf, blood orange, right. like, it's fall enough. harvest. It's like, enough. Just stop. We don't we don't need this. I mean, it's one of those signs that we have reached our apex of content creation. Right? <laughs> like we like there's too many content creators out there. We need we need to dial it back. De-escalate the content. But then what will all the YouTube channels dedicated to supermoons do? I don't know. Go back to tarot reading, I assume. <laughs> I I actually subscribe to about 7 of those. Yeah, I know. Well, and you're the one who let me know about the flower blood supermoon <laughs> okay, or whatever it's fair, called. That's a fair point. So, <laughs> well, in addition to all of this craziness that's going on in the night sky, what is the focus of this podcast today, Michael Chapman? Well, today we're going to talk about how different supplements, medications, and other things might influence some of the stool analytes on mm -hmm. a stool test. Yeah. Uh, something with that we talk a lot about. We have we do. a lot of resources around it, and it's a little bit tricky, so we figured we kind of lay this out for people to understand. Well, as you know, anyone who orders a Genova test gets you know one of our collection packs in their office, drop shipped to their homes, inside our collection pack instructions that kind of lay out ways to prepare for the test. However, there is a disclaimer as it relates to holding medications. Yeah. Uh, the thing that we always say is never discontinue something that's medically necessary in order to perform a, a profile or, you know, any sort of testing like the GIFX stool test or the CDSA. So, you know, that's that's kind of a no brainer, but it's it needs to be said because, right, it, you, you're not wanting to discontinue something that's that's going to be medically necessary. necessary for sure. Right. Right. 
but there, sometimes there are supplements that are not necessarily medically necessary and can be stopped and held. And we would we would caution about that, even with that, to have the clinician make that decision with the patient. But sometimes they can be held in order to perform testing, but not things that are medically necessary, like seizure medication. Clearly, yeah. And at the end of the day, it's right. It's up to the the clinician to mm-hmm. make the decision on what they're going to discontinue and not discontinue. That is not our role here. Like we're, we're the ones doing the testing and we can talk about, you know, how it might affect things. But at the end of the day, note with this information, hopefully it's going to allow you to make a more informed decision about what you might think about discontinuing and what not to. And in fact, some clinicians opt to keep their patients on their medications and supplements because they want to either a see the efficacy of their treatment or B, see what happens on a day-to-day basis while that patient is taking some of these medications and what are some things they can do to counteract abnormalities that might be going on. Right, right. So I think the first place to start is ultimately talking about the difference between what we consider an interferent versus something that influences the test. So Patty, you, you want to maybe dig into that a little bit and, and sure. talk about the difference? Sure. So as you know, in a lab, right, there's a specific kit for each biomarker and test that make up a big profile. And each one of those, there are very specific standards that need to be followed and very specific directions that happen in the laboratory. Sometimes there are specific medications and supplements which actually interfere with the lab's ability to read the test or to perform that assay. Those are interference. They can't even run the test. Right. So I think of a classic example as essentially charcoal mm-hmm. and how it might impact the parasitology section of the test because the, the staining that occurs with charcoal interferes with the ability to actually sort of look at things through the microscope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that brings up a different topic. So we have interference. That's one class of problems as it relates to medications and supplements. Then there's influencers. So Mm -hmm. what does that mean, Michael? Yeah, so that is going to be something that impacts the test, but doesn't interfere with our ability to run the analyte. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think a really classic example is like somebody's on probiotics or prebiotics, uh, that might influence their microbiome, right? They're taking it. And so therefore they might have maybe more robust findings of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria because they're taking it as a supplement. And so what you're getting as far as a result is you don't know how much of it is due to the the baseline microbiome of the patient versus what they're supplementing with. And I think another important point is that although this is so commonly asked of us, oftentimes we don't know the answer. I mean, we don't know how every medication or supplement is going to impact results. We don't know how it might impact one patient versus another. The best we can do is go through literature to see what's been proven. We anecdotally talk to clinicians on the phone and look at results, and we can kind of think it through physiologically. And so with that, that's kind of where we're going to go as we discuss these influencers versus interference. So maybe we can get into some of the most commonly asked medications, Mm -hmm. supplements, how they might interfere. And maybe we can do it a little bit by category, starting with the laxatives. That's probably what we get asked the most about, because it turns out there's a lot of constipation out there. It's the the reason people are even getting the GI effects in the first place. I mean, there's a lot of constipation out there. I mean, that's one of those things that I think is always kind of shocking when you get out into clinical practice Mm -hmm. for like the first few years and you're like, you're talking to the patient and you're like, do you have any constipation? They're like, no. I'm like, okay, like how many bowel movements do you have every day? It's like per day. Like I have like one, one per week. I know. And you're like, do you have, do you have normal bowel movements? And they say, yeah, yeah they're normal, but yeah. it's just cause it's normal for them. Yeah. Yeah. One <laughs> per week. Like clockwork. Not good. Okay. Okay. So these patients then are taking laxatives mm-hmm. and wanting to do the GI effects comprehensive stool profile to figure out why they're so constipated. So what do the laxatives do to it? Well, they speed up transit time. <laughs> 
Is that? I mean, as it relates to testing. Well, there's a lot of things on the test that are somewhat influenced by transit time. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it, you know, if we're talking about how well the digestive tract is absorbing, digesting things, then that's somewhat dependent on transit time. If you have a very rapid transit time, you're going to be less adept at digesting and absorbing things like protein and fat. Um, And so with a laxative, what you might be doing is actually kind of artificially raising levels of fecal fats and products of protein breakdown given the more rapid transit time and the laxative influence on transit time. And if you're taking a laxative such that you're getting watery stool, you can dilute some of the other biomarkers like pancreatic elastase one, for example, but odds are that's not the case. I will also say sometimes patients take laxatives on a daily basis and it normalizes their transit. So sometimes sure. we, we won't even see any effect on the GI effects. Yeah. And that's kind of the point is like, well, if you're trying to figure out what the cause of the constipation is, and then they're on a laxative, then their results might look a little bit more normal because they have a quote unquote normal, normally formed stool and transit time. And so you won't actually be seeing the evidence of the constipation perhaps. And so I had this interesting question was, would it be different if somebody's supplementing with like a magnesium citrate and vitamin C uh, as compared to something like a Miralax? How would you answer that? Well, I would say anything that can alter transit will have the same kind of effect, right? I think about things like mineral oil, right? People or castor oil that people take to kind of increase your transit. Miralax, some of these things, it really comes down to what is it doing to the transit? Is it normalizing it or increasing it? Yeah. And the other thing I think of too is, you know, something like psyllium or maybe magnesium citrate is not going to have as much of an impact on the microbiome as maybe something like Miralax that's propylene glycol. We have seen a couple instances Mm, where something like that actually did have an impact to the microbiome. Um, And so there might be some concern around that as well. So, you know, if, if laxatives are absolutely necessary to perform testing in this case, and you're making the decision to continue that patient on a laxative to do the testing, then I might vie for some of the more natural type laxatives rather than something like a Miralax. But then again, I'm a naturopath. So of course I'm going to say that. (laughs) But then again, it comes to that point of we don't know. We can't always predict. And every patient is different. Every patient reacts differently to each of these supplements and medications. All right, let's jump to probably our second most asked question. Does my patient have to stop their digestive enzymes, things like betaine HCL or pancreatic enzymes? Yeah, so the important thing to know there is that digestive enzymes are not necessarily going to influence the pancreatic elastase marker, which is the marker for kind of exocrine pancreatic function, i.e. digestive Mm -hmm. enzyme production in the pancreas. Um, It's not going to impact that. It's not going to like make it artificially high or anything like that. But what it could do ultimately is, again, if somebody's having maldigestion and malabsorption normally Mm -hmm. without the digestive enzymes, maybe that's why they're taking the digestive enzyme, then if you have them on it, their results might look more normal. You might not have the evidence of maldigestion, malabsorption of things like protein and fat that they normally would show in the absence of the enzyme. So in essence, holding them prior to testing gives you that baseline so you can try to get to that root cause. But again, it's not going to interfere with our ability to do the test, but it might influence the results. Yeah, and you know, that thought about digestive enzymes not necessarily influencing pancreatic elastase 1, Mm -hmm. it makes me think about something because there actually are a lot of other things that can influence Mm -hmm. pancreatic elastase 1. Right. You know, we haven't really spent much time on pancreatic elastase Mm -hmm. 1. Maybe we should do better know a biomarker. 
You think you, you know? Think you, know? <laughs> you think you know your biomarkers? You don't know. You don't know your biomarkers. This is. This is. Better know biomarkers. I mean, people might know their biomarkers. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just, you know, it's a it's no. lend a helping hand to some. I think you're implying people don't know anything. Is that what you're saying there? That's, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm it just, could just be they know some biomarkers but not others. No, I'm saying it's important to know your biomarkers. Yes, you okay. better know your biomarkers. I like the way you fra- reframe that. And I think pancreatic elastase one is an important one, so let's better get to know it. So when I think about pancreatic elastase, we're thinking about exocrine pancreatic function. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, this is a proteolytic enzyme. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're talking about proteases and things of that nature or uh, markers in that family, enzymes in that family. And so you could tell by the ASE ending. It's an enzyme that is a dead giveaway for any enzyme ends in ASE or sometimes a medication could also mm. end, end in an ASE. Right? I guess. so. Anyway. Yeah. What we're talking about is, is your pancreas producing digestive enzymes? You know, how adequately? And when this marker gets very low, you know, we th- tend to think of under 100, that's a really strong indication for need for PERT, pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. So, Patty, what are some of the things that might cause a lower pancreatic elastase? Well, in my mind, I think, okay, what are the primary things that could go wrong with your pancreas, right? People who are chronic alcoholics or have actually type 1 diabetes or have something specifically wrong with your pancreas, whether it's like an autoimmune condition or something specific with the the pancreas itself. But... There are other things, just getting older, right? As you age, your pancreatic function starts to decline a bit. You're saying old people have broken pancreases? No, I'm just saying, much like all things as we get older, it doesn't work as well as maybe it did when you were younger. What's the plural of pancreas? We can't Google and do a Google it within another segment. We can't do a Google it within a better know biomarker. Why not? You're saying it will break the space-time continuum (laughs) or something? Perhaps. You want to try it? No, not really. I mean, I don't think it's going to be used in very many cases. Like, because we only the have doctor, one. Yeah, the doctor's <laughs> like nurse. Like, what am I going to do with all these pancreases? <laughs> Interestingly, the plural is pancreases or pancreata. Ooh. <laughs> so those are some of the overt scenarios where mm-hmm. we might see a lower pancreata elastase one, right? <laughs> but I also think about things like um, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, potentially. Any sort of systemic inflammatory condition has been shown to have lower levels of pancreatic elastase. And then a big one that we talk about on the phone of quite a bit is actually the how small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, might influence pancreatic elastase in sort of a feedback loop. Do you want to explain that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So we talk about when the bacteria from our large intestine make their way into the small intestine where they don't belong, that overgrowth of bacteria starts to blunt the microvilli of the small intestine. And that, the microvilli of your small intestine actually sends signals to the pancreas to release things like cholecystokinin, yeah, cholecystokinin mm-hmm. and secretin and pancreatic enzymes. And so when there's that blunting of the microvilli of the small intestine by SIBO, that signaling gets disrupted. And so it stops sending out pancreatic enzymes. Here's another interesting thing that can influence pancreatic elastase is vegan and vegetarian diets. Yeah, we see that. We see that a lot. How come? Well, I don't think we know for 100% certainty, but one of the thoughts there is that uh, given vegetarian vegan diets ultimately might have a different composition of protein, it somehow influences the actual amount of proteolytic enzyme that's made, i.e. pancreatic elastase. Hmm. 
there's sort of a feedback mechanism to what people are eating. And we definitely know that the composition of digestive enzyme secretions changes in respect to what somebody's eating. So clearly, if your pancreatic elastase one is starting to fall, you're going to need to, number one, figure out the root cause of why. And then number two, consider supplementation until you're able to correct the underlying issue. But I think what got us here in the first place is the fact that if you're taking pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, Mm -hmm. it's not going to affect the level of PE1 we're picking up in the stool. Right. Okay, so here's another obvious one. Okay, as it relates to PE1? No, as it relates to just medications, things that might influence results. Yeah. Uh, Antibiotics. Oh, yeah. Or antifungals. Sure. Or antiparasitics. Anti, think, medications that kill things. <laughs> Even herbal things. Yeah, for sure. Like some of the antimicrobial herbal things. Yes. So clearly, if you're taking a medication or supplement that's meant to kill various bacteria, fungus, or parasites, it makes sense, right? That you may not see these things. You may see lower levels of various types of bacteria. You may see lower levels of, maybe there's a yeast overgrowth that's not going to be picked up, but... You know, when you give an antimicrobial, you're not just targeting the bad guys. Sometimes the commensals go down, too. Right. And that's the main concern is that, you know, are you what are you really wanting to see? Are you going to want to see somebody who maybe microbiome has been impacted by their antibiotic use? Then, you know, that's that's something to take into consideration. Or are you going to wait until the effect of that my, that antibiotic has worn off and maybe they've had a chance to repopulate and then you want to see mm-hmm. what their microbiome looks like. We're really just talking about the commensal bacteria and at what stage during that process do you are you wanting to take a look? Okay, cool. So let's say someone was on an antimicrobial and you do take a look and it's lacking. Oftentimes clinicians will put them on a probiotic to help rebalance the microbiome, which brings up another big question we get, Michael. Do you have to stop probiotics to do the GI effects? No, I mean, again, you don't have to stop it. It's not going to interfere with our ability to run the test. You just have to be aware that if somebody's taking a probiotic and then you run the GIFX stool test, then it might influence the levels of the commensal bacteria. You know, we think specifically the ones that are found in probiotics, like like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria species. But we also know that probiotics have the capacity to uh, boost the levels of a lot of other commensal bacteria too. So you might see higher levels in response to certainly long-term use with probiotics if it's, you know, an mm-hmm. effective one. Right. It's what you're wanting to do. <laughs> so that might be a factor to keep in mind. Um, and it's not giving you an evaluation of what their baseline microbiome was. And I will also say sometimes patients take spore-based probiotics. And so oftentimes we'll see bacillus grow out in culture because of that. Sometimes they're taking a probiotic that has saccharomyces in it. We'll see saccharomyces grow out in culture. So it's important to keep in mind and to know what your patient's taking when you get the results back and put them in that context. Yeah. And the same argument argument can be made for prebiotics as well, because Mm -hmm. the whole idea is you're fueling the growth of the commensal bacteria and the microbiome. So you're probably going to see the effects of prebiotic supplementation on the commensal bacteria. All right, Patty, I'm going to kick another one to you because it makes me so frustrated that I don't even think I can speak on it. But proton pump inhibitors, PPIs. Yeah, this is a big one. And in functional medicine, we know proton pump inhibitors can do a lot of things systemically and in your GI tract. It can set you up for SIBO because what it does for a living is it blocks stomach acid. And hydrochloric acid is helpful to break down proteins and fats. And so your body makes it for a reason. You kind of need it, right? And so. The one thing I think of whenever someone's on a proton pump inhibitor is I think about the products of protein breakdown, right? Because in essence, your body's supposed to break down protein and then reabsorb it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have enough stomach acid because you're on a PPI, you're not going to break it down. We're going to see higher levels in the stool. 
yeah, hydrochloric acid helps to hydrolyze peptide bonds, separate them so that they make them absorbable. But I also think about potential impacts to the fecal fat Mm -hmm. because fecal fat digestion depends on lipases, right? And every single digestive enzyme that is in your small intestine operates at a certain pH. And so that pH is governed by the stomach acid. So if you're altering the pH, you're also altering the efficacy of any sort of digestive enzyme. So you could have influences to to fecal fats as well. Michael Chapman, you're really smart. Thanks. Okay, well, last one that I think might be important to talk about is NSAIDs, pain relief, steroids, Mm. things of that nature. Well, I think we should break it into two. Let's first talk about NSAIDs, right, or aspirin. We know there's a section on the GI effects called inflammation and immunology, right? So if you're taking anti-inflammatory medications, odds are it's going to affect some of those inflammatory markers and may lower them. Yes. Right? Yeah, with one exception. So NSAIDs also might cause calprotectin elevations. And that kind of makes sense because we know chronic NSAID use can cause damage to the GI tract, right? NSAID enteropathy. So that that one makes sense as well. Yeah. So if we take aspirin and NSAIDs as one piece of the inflammation immunology section, and now we're going to look at the immunology part of this, which would be steroids. Yeah. So what do you think steroids might do? to this section, Michael? Well, steroids are going to do what steroids do. I mean, let's just face (laughs) it. They're going to do what they're going to do, which is going to be suppress immune response. Right. And so by that nature, they're likely or could contribute to lower levels of fecal secretory IgA. And that's that's the main one I think of, whether it's going to have impact on eosinophil protein X. I'm not sure. It's possible. More likely, you know, IgA is an immune response, and so it could impact that. And then a lot of patients, especially IBD patients, are on some of those other things that are autoimmune medications like Humira and some of those immunomodulatory. So you can, you can see the effects of those medicines here as well. Oh, Patty, you know oh, what that sound come means. On. Are you ready? No, I'm not ready. Oh, oh, Michael. What time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Oh, Michael. Question of the day. Michael. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. So, flabbergasted. These jingles. Really? What about them? Like Dr. R says, they're brutal, but I can't stop laughing at them. I don't know what else to say about it. I'll keep working on it. Don't. All right. Well, I have a question. It's not a question that somebody wrote in, although you can do that podcast at gdx.net. Mm-hmm. Question of the day. Contribute. Um, my question, this was a lot of information to go yeah, over. Yeah, Is lot. there, it, and and I, maybe I'm not always going to go back and reference this specific podcast. Is there a place where I can actually look up these different medications and what they do? Well, first and foremost, you can go back and continue to listen to this podcast over and over and over, but... I mean, that I'm sure you want to hear the jingle again. Who doesn't, man? But we have compiled all of this information, and it lives directly on our website. So if you go to gdx.net and you go through the test menu, you click on GI effects or any of the stool profiles, you come to a product page, right? Then off to the side of the product page under additional resources, you'll see test prep, and we have test prep pages for our flagship products where we literally will outline everything we know or think we know as to how medications and supplements will influence the test. So go looking for the test prep pages. And if you actually want the link to that, uh, there's also links to it on the collection pack instructions that come in every single collection pack. And if that weren't enough, oh gosh, we'll put it in the show notes. Next time on The Lab Report, Patty talks about astral impacts to your gut health. Maybe I shouldn't. It's almost Mercury Retrograde. Whatever, Patty. It's always Mercury Retrograde. You've been listening to The Lab Report. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Did you ever have a telescope when you were little? I have a telescope now. You do? Yeah. Oh, man. Did you go out and look at the supermoon with it? Uh, I have done that a couple times, yes. And my uh, my uncle is actually an astronomer. No way. Yeah. Yeah, so he used to take us out in Arizona, and we'd look at, like, uh, different nebula and stuff like, like that. Like in an observatory? Like a big deal? Uh, no, he had, like, his, his own telescope that he uh, would show us stuff, but he actually knew how to operate it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Hi, Uncle Gary. <laughs> Can you get us Neil deGrasse Tyson? <laughs>